the very events which allowed for us to exist depend upon actions such as northern courage, such as unyielding, standing defiance in the face of face of death, because the actions of our forefathers inevitably are bound up with the events which led to our, you know, to to us. So it's within our history as well, our our history, not just in an abstract sense of maybe even just our people, but like each individual Englishman, you could look at their the history of their family and see these events. So it, that gets carried through too. And so when you have something like um, the, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth, I, f- I found that was a moment where this broke forth in a lot of people because many people had very intense reactions and emotions that they had never experienced before and were suddenly loyal to King Charles in a way they had never felt before. And I, I wonder if if that sort of thing really points to that, because it's 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 not just an admiration of a, a great hero. You've got you've got the at the same time rituals which belong to that history with these values and events, which is being brought into the present too. So the you've got the individuals, you've got the persons, you've got the rituals. And they're all bound up together in our history and it breaks forth in that moment. Today we're talking with Dr. Nathan Hurd. He's an excellent scholar of English theology, history and literature. He's also got a great YouTube channel where he examines English folk and legend, which you can check out. The link for that's in the description. That what drew you to, uh, not that you're that political, but that the dissident right. Did, when, what was your inciting incident to take the courage to say, you know, no, you know what? Where I'm just going to go after truth because that can that might, that's a, for me it was a very hard decision because I was in the film industry and I knew I was never going to work again in that area. And I, I imagine that also felt the same for you as a P, you're a PhD in your your area of study, right? And so I imagine that was a big step for you because you knew that you were not going to. Uh, or it would be troublesome. It's kind of a Roger Scruton move. It's like, you know what? I'm doing what is the highest good anyway, and then let's see what comes of it. But maybe you could talk a bit about that, that inciting incident. What was it for you that said, I've had enough, I'm going to step out and be a true Chad Englishman? (laughs) Uh, I I think uh, it wasn't one thing. It was a cumulative effect. Mm. I think, um, so so where where I went to you, where I worked at university, I also studied and I saw the change over a period of 10 years where before it was a place where my, my department was quite nice, where it was quite small. And it was a place where people from a variety of backgrounds could just discuss their points of view. And, you know, there was freedom of discussion, but we all got along. And then mm. this stuff sort of started to come in and that, you know, I raised some protests and got in trouble at one point for a, uh, for challenging the idea of safe spaces. Right. I, I didn't merely just challenged that. I didn't challenge anything more. And I, I had a disciplinary meeting about that. Mm. And then after that, I did some more digging and I discovered things like the funding for new research positions is all to do with environmentalism or decolonization. And I realized that actually um, my own kind of field where I'm just doing church history trying to do it faithfully and truthfully there's no funding for that there's no mm. research positions there that's how they so do that it. was kind of, that's how they oh, do it. 
exactly and, and people don't realize this they, they think it's just um you know oh people have just been persuaded no the the actual jobs that are going you have to conform with the message and if you don't then then you can't fit in I, I think also beyond that though I've always had an interest in thinkers which appeal to the sincere and the sacred so somebody like Thomas Carlyle who he studies history to see those great individuals who in their own ways were tapped into the transcendent and totally aligned with that and as a Christian I find that very powerful uh, I think Carlyle was himself influenced heavily by John Knox he, he talked about him and that's who my research is on so there was this kind of natural congruence then of um, what was going on in my work life and some of these thinkers that I was reading and seeing that the society we live in is not like those great men and their vision it's materialist it's it's totally totally rooted in a, a view of kind of what can I gain materially how can I satisfy my desires it's hypocritical constantly there's no principle which is ever held to you, you try and nail one down on one end and somebody that has a different principle on another end to justify whatever nonsense it is um and just that that sense that there's something more that we've lost and these individuals seem to have so that that's kind of where it came from and I found the distant right to be a place where you could seek wisdom and uh the sacred in an open way yes yeah I think that the power of some of these when you discover them these thinkers for that it helps you discover the impulsion from within where it's mm. because everything as you say it's been devoid if you look at uh the four causes of things, or or you, which is which is Aristotle's four causes. But if you think about it in a Heideggerian way, that sort of gods, mortals, air, and earth, which is you know uh, the efficiency, the material, uh, the forms, and the telos. Right? We've pulled the telos is gone, so everything appears to be oh, everything's just material. But that's because it's all been pushed unconscious, hasn't it? Because we've been devoid of that. But what these thinkers do what these poets do is they reawaken us to what's actually there. The illusion is the material. The illusion is this scientism. That's the fucking illusion. Excuse my French. That's the illusion, isn't it? So, uh, yeah, most definitely. And, and so, so for you, what, what, what kind of things have you found most impelling for you? What were the most, the, the, perhaps it's a verse or a story uh, or a practice or a ritual? You're Christian, of course, so that is, of course, impelling for you. But outside of that, perhaps, the people that aren't, that might help them into this world of imp impelled from within, being, like Carlisle had. I mean, Carlisle's a good example of it, but yeah. What, what verse, though, perhaps, do, do you, have you come to as a, let's, we could, for the materialists, we could call it a psychotechnology. What things have you that, that open you to that? That, that uh, you know what I mean? That vital force that gives yes. you read it and you go, yes, this has it. This has it. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe this is a bit too mainstream, but I would say Tolkien yeah. really yeah. has been that for me. Um, I, I've always had a love for Tolkien, but I could never put my finger on why until I started reading somebody like Carlyle. And then it slotted into place. And I saw actually this 
this speaks to something within me that I feel intuitively. I just know it by instinct. This world that Tolkien created where the sacred or the magical and the material are intertwined, that they're not separate and they're not devoid of one another. They're fully integrated. And this world where there's a, there's a hierarchy within it, naturally and socially. And these two, when they come apart, that's, when, that's where evil is. And when they're together, that's where the good is. So seeing those things combined with, you know, this, some of those great stories of certain characters, like Sam, for example, you know, his devotion to his master. It's not, Frodo's not just his friend, he's his master. And he's willing to obey him at all costs and show courage in that. I think that really spoke to me in a very powerful way. And then doing digging in that and then learning, okay, actually Tolkien was influenced by Norse mythology and Saxon poetry and so on. That that was a whole rabbit warren of learning more and seeking more in, uh, kind of understanding and, and wisdom from these texts. And I think Tolkien does a good job of mediating a lot of these things. Uh, he he's He tries to be faithful, I think, to the spirit of them even if he has some differences, but there's still something about re- returning to those original yes. texts and reading them themselves. A hundred percent, because, and this is my thought about Tolkien, because a lot of people think, oh, he's created the mythology for England. No, yeah, that was his original goal. But he knew over time that that was never going to, he's absorbed mm-hmm. the Geist, but it's not perfect. What he's done isn't perfect. He's one man. And the oral tradition, the folk tradition, all oh, it's, the best way to get away from the possibility of one artist messing something up is, is to, to look into that. Especially, that's why I love the folk tradition and Robin Hood and the ballads, because no person intended anything. They didn't want you to think anything about it. It's almost its own geist. It's its own organism. It is its own organism. It is. That's how daemons sort of emerge. That's how uh, uh, principalities in Christian hierarchical terms, but that's how they emerge in these things. But with Tolkien, I think... You can access these things. And the reason why I think it possibly, or you might be able to comment on this, is why it impelled you towards it. It's because he did capture patterns of behavior that match up to these texts outside of, like you said. But they're also these texts there within us. In Tolkien's mythology, he makes it very clear that there's no absolutely evil being. Every evil being fell. So Sauron started out as a good angelic figure and fell. So he's kind of satanic. But you see this with men and elves and so on. And in a way, you could see this with the plight of the Englishman that you were drawing on, that this thing is within us, that by nature, there is something good there. But modernity, uh, industry, the uh, commercialism and so on, mass migration, these things, this ideology we inhabit today, it's we live in that illusion. We've mm. fallen into that. But yes. that restoration is a return to what we were before, maybe even a better form of it, perhaps. Mm. Mm. Um, and for Tolkien, his, he, in w- one of his essays on fairy stories, he talks about how, in his view, fantasy and mythology has this power to enable people to see reality again for what it is. We become mm. too familiar with things. Yes. Uh, we take them for granted and we become possessive of them and see them in a utilitarian way. Whereas by presenting the familiar in an unfamiliar manner, whether that's uh, maybe in a, you know, in a magical creature 
or a mythological being like a giant. Mm. We then, or, or let's take the Ents, they're maybe the best example. They're living trees. So we see trees not just as wood, not just as an inconvenience for my garden, but actually a living reality, part of the landscape, which is much more ancient than human mm. civilization is, and to which we must have a harmonious uh, being or things end very badly for human humanity. Mm. So th- this recovery through mythology is quite important for Tolkien. Recovery of who we actually are and mm. our relationship to reality. Mm. Well, well, I think, too, is that you really hit on something there, which is important. And Heidegger would talk about this and call it inauthentic being. So underneath, underneath the authentic being still there. And that authentic being is what pulls you towards these stories. The inauthentic being is stuff like English stoicism, which is a invented fake propositional value. It's propositional in the sense that it's enforced Victorian uh, on a certain class of people that the English are gregarious. The English are gregarious by nature, and this idea, which is made propositional, we know it's inauthentic when it's propositional like that. Not always, because, of course, if you render a value into a proposition, it can be a, a decent description of a value. It's never the value itself, though. But this value, I mean, Stoicism itself is a set of practices from the Roman age. That's not a moral impulsion from within. So to call it an English value, no. That, and we know Cheston talked about this as well. But the point is, inauthentic and the authentic. So we know when we, we're ruled at the moment by a propositional parasite. So it's on the top. Being is not just the propositional. Being is not just language. So that's where Heidegger was wrong, because he had a bias for language. Which is, so he would call the language the house of being. But there's the propositional. Sorry, there's the procedural. There's the perspectival. You know, music. Music. We really we, we probably began with music before it came to language. Point is, though... As you say, it's, it's this inauthentic thing over the top that's this left brain, that's this left brain dominance of over philosophic, over, over rationalism, the domination of the techne, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, that's, that's a really important element. And I think the mythos, too, isn't just enchanting it, it's a truer representation of the tree as it's all encompassed. If you think about the tree in a way that's not in our current ontology, if you think about being in a way that's outside of that over time, then they do, they are alive in a way. They are alive in their effect on us that's just been driven unconscious in the sense that that's what mythos does. If, he, if Tolkien has done his job properly, he's encompassed the spirit of the tree over a long period of time in terms of its value to us. So there's, it's actually true. It ends up being true. So people think, oh, well, he's just enchanting it. But no, no, he's actually articulating it in a way that's truer than the mechanistic articulation of what a tree apparently is, according to the left brain that just breaks things into, their, into parts and things aren't the sum of their parts. We know that now because of emergence. But anyway, I'll throw it back to you. Well, and, and certainly the, he, he even says... If- Uh, I think in the character of Gandalf, a fool breaks a thing to understand it, Mm. which I think is a beautiful way of summarizing what he's just said. (laughs) And see, that's what people don't realize about Tolkien is he was a philosopher underneath it all, you know, Mm -hmm. and his son articulated that well is that these people, and especially with Amazon now, is that they've destroyed his philosophy that was underneath it. He felt that about the movies and perhaps they did. 
Um, but they still gave the spirit of the stories, at least. But he was a philosopher underneath it. But isn't it? Wow. The way you said that. Yeah. My mind just clicked. That's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> but in one sentence that I took all this time to say, and Tolkien's just uh, done it in one one thing. Yeah. Hey, the the Ents said, you know, uh, if if anything's worth saying, it's worth taking a long time to say. So yeah. you've also got that on your side there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but I I guess as well because I, I was uh, we we will get to the Wanderer at some point. But you yeah, said yeah, whenever this direction. can go anywhere it wants, man. Who cares? That, they were just guidelines. <laughs> but go go. Um, I, I think as well, it connects us to the personal realm that because you've been talking about the abstract the the intellectual dominating and certainly in for somebody like max weber when we live in a bureaucratic society where the organization of it is according to rational principles with a a body of officials who are technically trained to pursue those those principles or rules and they're all replaceable you know you could get another civil servant from the system uh, and nobody has any kind of real ownership over the system. They literally don't own it, right? They don't own the means they administer. Uh, and that's true of corporations as well. The CEO doesn't own his own company, uh, right? Whereas in an older system, it's rooted within certain personal relationships of a king and his servants, for example, or his subjects. Uh, and the relationships between a noble and those who are bound by oath to that noble. And then, so it's, and those kings and nobles have actual ownership over the system as well. That's being administered on their behalf. And I, I think Tolkien in his, his way and the myths in their own way, they're all stories of people acting and in these relationships, some of them breaking their responsibilities, others upholding them. And it's something devoid from our world because of this abstraction and focus on um, abstract ideas like efficiency or health or happiness, where as opposed to, oh, I, I have an oath to Scott and I must fulfill this oath. And he has an oath to me that he must fulfill it's a very different way of seeing the world because you're not an abstraction, you're a person and the person you're in a relationship is too. And yeah, the, the thing about that is too, is that an oath is more than just the proposition that came out of the person's mouth. So when you, there's a whole, con, it's like a recipe, there's a whole context of things that are around it. So our oaths have become nothing, but their oaths are actually, the whole beings in it. So they don't even have to use like a Kantian way. They don't have to use a proposition that says, I must obey. They don't think I must obey this oath. No, it's natural that they swore it to begin with. It felt right. They're impelled from within and they're impelled from within later on. As we see from the right people in the Battle of Maldon, the people that stay in that battle are impelled from within. They don't need to even have the proposition to be there. They, they, they are, they just, it feels right, which is, and this aligns with Malu Ponte, it aligns with Aristotle in terms of virtue and sophism is when you've entrained, when you've entered this context and this teleology in this world, is that, and is that that's, you naturally just act the right way. Once you enter, you know, that's what Christianity, right, too, is that you enter a set of practices and worship and you'll act the right way. You don't have to go, ah, you, you will be less tempted. You won't be you're less tempted, right? Because you've entered a world 
and you have the virtue. The saint's less tempted by evil because he's entered that, even though evil has a greater effect on him if it gets in. Yeah, that, that's the point, though. Um, but also, I think, too, is that Tolkien story is, in terms of the master, it's also a great story of really encapsulates the yeoman in the sense of it's a story of a nobleman, of Frodo, because he comes from the countryside. He is a kind of, yes, he's, he's been yeah. lifted up for his virtue, though. And this is really English where the Continentals don't have this. And this fits in nicely where the Vola types would say, oh, it must only always be the nobles. No, in England, it's not egalitarian, though, but there, there's a, a new warrior caste emerged, the yeoman, right? It's not egalitarian, though. All the Englishmen go over. Every able-bodied man in England trains the longbow, ordered by the king. They go over and fight these wars. They're imitating the king. They love the king. This is where Robin Hood legends emerge. They uh, eat the king's deer, but they uh, love no man more than they love the king, right? So that's, it sustains them, and he's their model. And so after this, they all come back with these skills. They've entered the warrior caste. But the yeoman and his freehold is a opportunity. It's not a egalitarian thing where it's the peasant class. No, the peasants, they're still peasants. They still work the land. The yeoman's an opportunity for the populist hero for the people, that's what we are, that's what this is. This is you with your channel. It's Nigel Farage. It's Tommy Robinson. It's an opportunity for someone who embodies virtue, who is ennobled, to rise up and enter the hierarchy, and the king brings him in. But that hierarchy is still what it is. It, it refreshes it. It's the strong thing. You don't want it going anywhere. It's not a thing where, oh, it's the omen suddenly takes over and rules everything. No. He enters it, his virtue's assessed, and he's brought in. But anyway, Tolkien shows this in Frodo's ennoblement for his quest he's sort of brought in he has something that the others don't have it's and tolkien talks about it. it is no small thing to celebrate a simple life although that's a slight amendment of his actual idea with peter jackson's dialogue but that idea is what frodo goes through he's ennobled he's just a country englishman he says that, and he says this about the hobbits is that they are essentially in essence rural englishmen but uh, long devoid of weapons and such, but it's an opportunity for this emergent hero who's the son of a uh, Bilbo who's gone on a journey before to ennoble himself. Yeah. So I think that, that there is that English ideal in there. But I just want to make sure people don't think this is egalitarian because it's not. It's an important part of an emergent pathway in the hierarchy. Yeah. Well, well it's, it's certainly not egalitarian in the sense that I think for Tolkien... That, that, People often have this idea that he's against power because they think of the ring of power as evil. And so power is evil. I don't think that's true at all. What he's actually saying and what the ring does is it tempts people to have more power than their due. So um, somebody like Boromir, this mighty warrior from Gondor, he wants the ring to defend his kingdom. You know, it sounds noble enough, right? But he wants to be the leader who does it. He wants to be the warrior who unites everybody to his banner when he knows perfectly full well that Aragorn, who is the heir to the throne, he's really the person who should be the uniting everybody. So it's it's pulling on Boromir's desire to have more power than the natural order affords him. Same with Saruman. Saruman's a wizard who's been sent as a, a guide and steward to help the people of Middle-earth fight against Sauron. He wants the ring so he can rule and appoint, well, use his knowledge and order to conform the world to his will, essentially. But that's beyond what 
what is expected of him. It's not his position to do that. And the same with Sauron. Sauron wants to dominate all life, but that's not his place. He's not the ruler of Middle-earth. There is a god in Middle-earth, Iluvatar. That's his place, not Sauron's. So the ring and evil is this constant sense of wanting more than one's due. And Sam, uh, you know, who's, who Tolkien said was the hero of the story by the end, he rejects the ring for two reasons. He's tempted by it with this vision of uh, becoming Samwise the Brave, striding across Mordor with a flaming sword and warriors flocking to his, his cause. He's able to resist it because, firstly, he has a love for Frodo, his master, that he will not give up. He will not sacrifice that for any amount of glory, which is very similar to Tolkien's view of the Battle of Malden, I think. But then, secondly, he realizes it's too big a burden for him that even if it was true that this was possible, he's not big enough or capable enough to lead people in battle or to rule a country. He, it, it says in the text that all that is his due is a garden, and he's quite happy with you know with that. So there's this very strong sense of some people are fit to be kings and rulers like Aragorn or Frodo, this kind of yeoman character who definitely takes on a position of authority within the Shire or, um, well, within Middle-earth. And then there's other characters like Sam who recognise their place is not to rule, but to follow and obey and serve. And it's when that order is fixed that there's harmony in Middle-earth. It's when people try to usurp the, pro the proper roles that don't belong to them that there's chaos and disorder. Mm. Yeah, so I, I think that there's a recognition in him of what his virtues are. He understands what mm. his virtues are. And that doesn't mean people can't within that. Again, in the English sphere, like the omen, there is a place there for your virtues to go up there. And without that, the hierarchy would become rotten without having this way mm. of people to imitate and display they have this soul of the king. That's what it really is. It's like, oh, he's got a soul. He has our virtuous soul. Otherwise, if you don't do that, the hierarchy gets taken over by grubby merchants and middle managers, which is what has happened. Which is grubby people that sit in the cities, right? They sit in the cities that aren't that. So it's really a sample of all the countryside, of people that are, have the, are the very land itself, because being emerges from the land. And so that's a way of doing it. But yes, I think also there's a bit in that Sauron what you mentioned of Sauron and his domination, there's sort of a Faustian in that, because hmm. that is part yeah. of our nature in a way. Sometimes we reach too far, uh, the northern man, is that we, we, we are reaching in with our, uh, reaching to have, what's that quote? It's the philosopher tries to bring heaven itself into his mind and his mind explodes. The poet tries to dip his mind into heaven briefly. And it's a, it's a, it's a medication. It's a, he doesn't go insane. It's the, it's the philosophers are insane, you know, and, and especially northern man, it's because we're reaching to try, have it, ah, the propositions. We can all make it all propositional and the left brain can control everything, you know, and the techne. And that's really Sauron. It's, it's what's happening now. It's a system of the techne. It's like, no, we'll watch you in every moment. We'll have, and God, isn't it funny how well his, archetypal whatever is in his unconscious he's seen what was happening in the world and it's not allegory though at all it's just applicable as he talks about it's applicable to the real world never allegorizes 
But my God, the, what he has articulated is, is what has happened. And you see with uh, Elon, it's like a king sweeping in. We'll see how long that lasts, but we won't go into that. But um, <laughs> that's just going into a totally different subject. But point is, Tolkien, yeah. what, it's deeply applicable. And he's captured these archetypal things like Faust that are in our unconscious, that are part of our impulsions to see where we go wrong, which is kind of where it comes into this idea of uh, the tainted, when you alloy the metal of northern courage when you ally the metal of of that that's kind of what happens with faust or faust or however you say it say it yeah yeah well well the, i i want to draw this even more sharply with tolkien because he does it in in particularly with the second age of his mythology so prior to the lord of the rings there's two great falls as i see it one of men and one of elves and they both relate to this faustian idea in various ways but before before we kind of answer kind of address that it's important to note that Sauron himself starts out good as an uh, a kind of angelic being who specializes in craft making he's an excellent smith and this is a common theme with Tolkien that the dangers of making things leads you to want to what you were suggesting kind of bring heaven on earth you want the perfect Sauron knows this about the elves as well and so he tempts them by saying I, I will help you make these rings, these rings of power. And through them, you will be able to heal Middle-earth and essentially make it like paradise on earth. And the elves who, because they're immortal, but estranged from the promised land of, you know, where the, the angels live, they want this on Middle-earth. They want to make paradise on earth, which is blasphemous, essentially, Tolkien says. And so this is where the rigs of power get forged and Sauron forges his own ring and all of the ensuing events follow. So from this cause, great evil emerges. For men, the, the certain men after the first stage were blessed with longer life, but God had always given men uh, the gift of death, it says. And for a time they were content with this, but then men started wanting Im immortality and uh, they wanted it in this life, as it were. So not in the next life where they can have the eternal life, but in the present. And they can't have that because that's God said you can't have that. And in time, Sauron deceives them to say, actually, well, firstly, the God of Middle-earth doesn't exist. He's a fiction used to oppress you, to stop you from taking eternal life and immortality. And actually, Morgoth, the Dark Lord, is the real God, and he will give you eternal life, but you need to go and invade the Holy Land and go on a great armada. Well, they go and do this, and God, it's Iluvatar, uh, sinks their island, sinks their ships. It's a bit Atlantean, and only the faithful remnants survive. So again, maybe a bit like Noah and uh, the Judgment on Earth as well washing away all of that filth and so so for Tolkien this Faustian idea of grasping for the immortal or for paradise on earth exceeding what's been given to you and what's proper to you it has disastrous consequences for men and elves throughout this period and it's only with Frodo that there's actually redemption from all of this and Aragorn as well um being the I guess the the restoration of of men 
what came to me in, uh, when you talked about that is Aragorn is kind of like the authentic being underneath, isn't it? Is that when, when the, the domination of the propositional mind, the left brain, really, if you think about it, that's what Sauron is. That's, he's, he's an applicable symbol, not, not a representation, a symbol, as in a manifestation of this, um, of that, that domination. But underneath, the authentic being is kind of like this long... This, this filth that's found, that's what he is, right? Strider, becomes Strider. It reply, applies to that. And that's what Robin Hood is too, in filth that's found. But this authentic being has remained with all the stuff, with the elves and their ideas and the, the Numenorians and their arrogance. This house, this noble house underneath, this authentic being remains. And it shows you, that's what's so important is that you can think, oh, it has to always be, there's a pathway for the, there's a pathway for the yeoman, but at the same time, what this shows you is the authentic being of the ancestral spirit, which is the hierarchy, essentially, always remains there too. That can be given to you, that can be given to you, but it's in Aragorn, it shows you, it's a great applicability of saying, don't kill the hierarchy just for the sake of having some, uh, you know, it remains. And so, uh, yeah, that's just what came to me with that, is that that being... And with Sauron, too, you can see in this, is in the elves, is that you can't perfect these platonic ideas. You can't make them into something that's permanent. This idea that, ah, we have the concepts. They're the only true thing. They're the only true. That's the domination of the techne, man. The truth, which is the authentic gods, like you're saying. And that's what we've tried to do. We've tried to build out of our concepts, post-enlightenment, that all the concepts are this pure thing, and we're cutting ourselves off from true being, God, and true being, which is where the truth is. It's a clearing, concealing. It's a, you have to go back to it. Humans need to look into it because it's always, it always slightly, when you capture something in a scientific method, you've only, and this is what quantum mechanics shows, man, is that when you go to the bottom of quantum mechanics, it's all up for grabs because it shows that you've captured a picture of it, but there's aspects that you'll never fully capture, ever, ever in your laws you'll never bring it all like we said i said earlier with the philosopher trying to bring all of heaven into his intellect it's just never going to happen and so that's what that is that's what it's true being fighting back is when god says no 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 you i let you run for long enough and so that's when frodo does all the eagles come in and it's just yeah that's what i see in that is that there's a true authentic being underneath and eventually and that's mythos that's underneath it's underneath this propositional world. It all exists there in the unconscious. We, it's been pushed unconscious by the propositional mind, the left brain, but it's there. And eventually, you can see it rising right now, can't you? With people being possessed by woke ideology, they're possessed by demons. That's what a de- an egregore, they're possessed by that. Because they're not living the authentic being and the authentic God and real God, that's what happens, you know? And I think, you know, T- Tolkien shows that. That story shows that. That's what happens is Sauron possesses you uh, when that falls away. Anyway, what do you think of that? <laughs> well, there's, there's this common saying, kind of a, a pastor might say, of, you know, there's a lot of great theologians who don't know God. And what they kind of mean by that is they know all the theology, they know the ideas and the concepts, and they could discuss all the finer points of doctrine. But do they have a real relationship to the divine? Yes. That's kind of the point. And I guess as somebody who loves 
discussing Tolkien and myths and you know ideas I I see that danger in myself but also in online uh, kind of spheres because we're all a bunch of people that like to discuss things and get to grips with them but actually you know there's been a lot of debate about the rigs of power by Amazon and people getting very upset about the law being changed and I sympathize with that but my concern actually is not concern my my kind of objection to a lot of it is is okay you care about the the theology of Tolkien let's say but do you live mm. like Tolkien's story like the essence of Tolkien's story yes. do you embody those values are you somebody who imitates a Frodo or an Aragorn or do you care more about whether they got hobbits to dress right yeah. I think that's that's an important that there probably is something important to say about what, getting the costumes of hobbits right but it's far more important to to live in accordance with the spirit of yes. Lord of the Rings and at the end of the day if Amazon messes it up if you're living like the Lord of the Rings it will not get, matter because mm. it's just it's just um it's like a a barrow white it'll just disappear into dust mm. whereas the true and the good that you live is like a pillar that can't be eroded yes. in that way. And at least that's the thing is it was always meant to be something that led you towards the higher good Yeah. outside this. And so many people and people watching right now, did, did you may, and I was like this originally probably as well, is that did you, it's not, are you pissed because it was just an, something you loved as an entertainment or are you looking to say, hang on, there's something in this, that I'm is that there you can live this life by being Christian, of course. You can live this life and should, in my view. But you should it's more than just a perspectival. The power of cinema is is really crazy, right? It's the power of we don't know how this thing is it's dangerous in many ways. It's, that's why people call it a temple. It's a very way easy way to propagandize people. That's why they use it. It's not just a movie. For one thing. It doesn't just play on the screen. The screen's in your head. It's playing in your mind. But the point is, there's a whole thing outside of it that makes that thing. It's the, it's the like you were saying, it, it's, you need to, are we just going to be theory? Not, we, there are a lot of theory cells that are just theory selling, talking about theory online, like you said. Are you impelled from within like Carlisle, though? Have you opened the being to yourself? You have to be out there looking, find the being. Get it into you. And that's what I try to do. It's like, no, it's not just let's talk about what this means in the term in a formal analysis and a, you know, like a like a true materialist uh, literary critic. So get effed. You don't get it. You don't get it. You haven't let it into your being because you just think it's a story. You, you, you have to really get your ontology into. You have to break down. And that involves practices. That involves approaching perspectives, not just listening to me saying it with propositions isn't going to be enough. Like it's about I can I, you know we can make videos and give you that inspiration like Tolkien we can give you that ah oh, you'll feel a bit of it we'll open some of that being to you but to actually bring yourself into the context it's living a religious life it's living an English life it's it's being in the countryside it's opening it to yourself it's seeing the world realizing that this materialism not not just propositionally though you have to enter into it because people say oh I tried to be a Christian you know I tried to do this it didn't work whatever did you though really. Did you really enact the practices for long enough? Or did you just say it in your head? Because it's not just a problem. That's very, that's very uber 
Protestant, in, in active, there's nothing. I mean, you're a Protestant, I think that's fine. But yes, you know what I mean. You know what I mean, though. You know what I mean, though. It's very propositional. It's it's get into the life, the the way, the way, and then mm-hmm. it'll open to you. Um, yeah. So I totally understand, and that did. That's what we should be caring about because when you think about that, because it is a powerful story. But was it just? Is it just about this? Is it just about the politics of it? There's too many politics thinkers who aren't touching the being of England, who aren't don't get it because they're not in the perspective. They'll listen to you and me or people, and they'll say the right words, but they're empty, and you can tell because they're not. They're not saying it with this energy that I am. You know, mm-hmm. you can tell. You can see it. You can see they don't have the perspectival, the procedural practices behind it, the virtue embodiment that gives them the essence of it yeah well I, I think one thing that's really important to mention on this then is the way that we we've changed in terms of how we see ourselves in relation to the world um and i, I think this is, really speaks to what you've just been talking about because in the in a pre-modern kind of mindset uh charles taylor says that folks had a, a kind of poorest view of the self where the external world could enter into you and you were almost like a stage for reality. You see this with Aristotle's idea of knowledge where what you apprehend via the senses are the, the actual forms of objects, their, their properties, and they enter into you. He actually identifies it as like what's in you yes. is identical with the form of the object. So it's an actual external reality entering into you. But you can move beyond that to things like in medieval Christianity and early modern Christianity. Satan wasn't just an external being, but when you experienced a temptation or a doubt about your faith, they understood that as Satan actually being in your consciousness Hmm. and manipulating your thoughts and feelings. (laughs) Right. And then likewise, the divine, right? So if you, love somebody as you should then that is the holy spirit indwelling you and you can see that in a variety of traditions it's not just a christian idea you also have the concept of music right so if you look at pythagoras or aristotle music is understood as a kind of motion Uh, rhythm is a horizontal kind of motion and pitch is a vertical motion and this uh, is important because it means that all movements for Pythagoras generate some kind of musicality. So that's where we get the music of the spheres, the planets moving in certain proportionality to one another produces the cosmic harmony. But then this also affects the soul, because for these thinkers, and in the pre-modern mind, our passions, they didn't have emotions, they had passions and affections, which they described as motions of the appetite or either motions of the will or motions of kind of instinct so you're being moved and you're moved by external reality so this isn't something contained again it's the external breaking in so then that means that when you hear music which is a movement your soul can be attuned to the movement that you've just had it imitates it so to come to your point about film and modern music let's say we just think of ourselves as a buffered self as Taylor would say we're closed off nothing can enter in we feel things we're not moved by that we we might say we're moved by them what we really mean is 
I sit here and I watch this thing and I have a reaction to it and that's about it. Whereas in the the older sense, when I see that movie, in some way, it's actually entering into me and changing me. It's moving me in a certain direction. It's changing my inclinations from loving one thing to loving another and hating one thing and hating another. When you see like modern rock music and a band like Led Zeppelin or T-Rex describing their songs as spells, mm. I think that's very apt. They are, they, yes. Go. They are, yes. and they can they change us from the inside that we're not just passive um seeing it through a screen they come Mm. into us so i i think that although that is the reality because we our view of the world has changed because we see ourselves with this protective barrier to Mm. all things we're not aware of the power of things to move us yes and influence us and so that allows for this approach of intellectualization of studying it with a, a neutral or objective Fake. approach <laughs> when actually it's, it's, it's something which either way, whatever attitude you've got towards it is going to have an impact on you in some way. And yes. if you're aware of it, you can do something to maybe manage what's affecting you. Whereas if you don't know it, well, the whole world's going to de- explore explore you and destroy you, perhaps. Yes, it'll act out on you auto- autonomously. Is that you? Mm. That's what Jung talks about. That is that if you don't inter- integrate these unconscious forces, they will possess you. And the truth that what you're saying is so very true because when you look into primitive mentality, and this is a Levy Brune, I think, the sociologist. Uh, this is beyond that uh, Fraser. You know, you must know. You probably know Fraser, who has that golden bow. Is wrong about mm-hmm. all that wrong about all that and his interpretation of it but the point is what especially for what you're making is what we see as unconscious is the layer that they had at exactly the same time so what is unconscious now was for them mythos was together so firstly your point i 100 percent agree that these things are affecting they're just unconscious to you because you don't have a, a a strong awareness of them that's the problem so they are unconscious and we know this based on, well, there's many ways we know this, but also I think, again, back to this point of the primitive mentality is that they weren't just a set of superstitions. They believed it because this layer we're talking about, say my spirit, they believed that the idol of me had my spirit, had a spirit in it because they believed they had this layer that I had this vital force, right? So that layer of unconscious is, is in both of them. So for me, I've, I'm enchanted myself, right? Because the unconscious is here in its affect. The affect is there. The affect layer is there because we haven't, they haven't separated it. And it's there anyway now. You watch a movie, it's affecting you. You think it's not, but it's either unconscious and affects you later, or it's because you're eviler than you realize because when you're already filled with evil, <laughs> and we all are, not all of it, well, you know, we all try our best, but there are people that are most evil don't even notice because when you just add more evil, you're, again, this is young again, when you add evil to evil, you're easily tempted. It doesn't wound you much because you're already in that state. Whereas a saint, if he lets evil in, that wounds him. He's sensitive to it. He realizes it, but he's not tempted by it because he's got the virtue engine built up. So it's the opposite for him because he's recognized it and understands these unconscious forces. So understanding these things is very important. 
But the proof's in the pudding. You look, again, to primitive mentality, you see it, is that they, if you took away the unconscious element, then there'd be no reason for the articulation of the story about the idol of the person having this effect of them. So as soon as you t- take that away, they won't believe it anymore. So it's not that they have a stupid story about the idol. It's because the idol is, is them. And it's kind of true in a way when you think about it, isn't it? Say I use your name in conversation. What does that do for everyone there? And I say I'm talking shit about you or whatever it is. Let's say, so talking about it and saying, ah, uh, say your name. That does summon you there. So they believe, because the natives believe, and we would have believed back in tribal days, that a name presences the person. They wouldn't name things like snakes or whatever. They, that, because it really does, doesn't it? In the, in the unconscious of all the people there, and this participation, this, this distributed cognition, the name presences the person in the affect, all that. And that can get back to that gets back to people. So it's true that it does. So they use, and that's why they would they would not use use a name of someone else because it would presence them, uh, or they would unname something that was evil because it would presence them to all the people in their unconscious there. So what you're saying is verified by psychology. So all this stuff, if you can just get your mind out of this materialist way of thinking, because it's affecting you anyway. Yeah, exactly. And I think. I think there's kind of two things I wanted to pick up on there. I think one of them is that you know the the very fact that today the whole regime is bent on changing the meaning of words and preventing certain words from being said is indicative of this fact because there's a power in words. I mean, if you really wanted to push this idea even further, the very idea that somebody could be a gender that they're not or that they weren't born with, let's just say. Um, Is that not akin to some kind of the power of language to transform somebody magically in some way? You know, that sounds very similar. So we have these ideas that how we define something actually determines its being, not what's in front of us. So that it's there in our culture, even if, we don't see it that way. Um, I, th- I think the other thing, though, is so why why do we why have we lost this sense of things? Why why this separation of the material and the spiritual and the kind of union of the two? I think part of it is control. Our current um, society is obsessed with control and having control over every aspect of our lives. It ties in with this grasping after infinity, essentially. We don't, and I, th- I think particularly around death, we want to avoid death at all costs. So if there's a threat to it, we lock down all of our societies, we stay at home, and uh, we're willing to put everything else on pause to sustain our health. And that's a way of controlling. We need we need to have everything perfect. And if anything breaks in, we need to, you know, change everything to do that. We can't allow anything outside from entering in that's beyond our control. But actually the world isn't in our control. There are realities, external metaphysical realities, so much bigger than us. If you look at the mythologies or folklore, Isn't it interesting that so many places are associated with like a giant dumping soil or throwing a rock? So you've got this huge creature 
far beyond any human being who could just pick any of us up and and you know didn't they a lot of giants eat human beings right so we're, we're their natural prey and these beings just you know casually create and shape the environment around us that's reflective of these huge forces it could be the sacred it could be the demonic it could be the fairy and if you look at the paintings of somebody like john martin with the day of wrath or sodom and gomorrah the deluge you really get this sense that i think is encapsulated here of there are things beyond human civilization so much more powerful and one day they will come back to bite it there will be a, a reaction there will be a corrective when it's gone far astray and there's very little we can do about it when the flood comes people were being given in marriage they were having feasts didn't matter you know there's what are you going to do when the flood comes across the whole world so i i definitely think that's part of it because we can't control it so we've eliminated this sense of it or we pretend it's not there because we because it goes beyond our little world but it's going to hit it well it's already breaking in it's already there and it's going to hit back in a massive way and uh, we're already seeing the cracks and uh, you know it's not it's a good thing but it's also a slightly terrifying thing as well because you know to fall into the hands of an angry god or to fall in the hands of an angry universe or whatever you want to describe it Mm. we're little lance this is this is going to be a a wake-up call on epic proportions and i think it's it's good for those who prepare for it and see it in advance that's what we can take solace in is that if Mm -hmm. you're aware of it and that's what that's noah that's the story right and the thing that's important here to understand is that this is coming out for those that are science heads, distributed cognition, hyper objects, hyper agencies. This is where the conversation is on the cutting edge of cognitive science. Right? These, these things are real. The ancients knew what these things were. Those stories were symbolic descriptions. And that doesn't mean metaphor. That means something that encompasses and can be used to mediate, to understand what the thing is. They knew that. Mm. So when they, when they said giant, they knew what we're now coming to reverse engineer to understand. When you said giant to them back in the day, well back, they knew those forces were, you know, they just didn't have the scientific words to talk about. It's the same with an angel. Those angels are real. We can use scientific language to talk about them. Okay, uh, uh, hyper-agency, distributed cognition. They're, they are beings in the unconscious, whatever you want to use. They, the point is, those symbols are often the more effective way, those that symbolic understanding to understand these phenomena. They understood them. They saw the signs in manifestation. The flood's coming. You better be ready for it. Because like I've said before, if you don't have a positive daemon, which is Englishness or Christianity, you're going to be at the beckoning call of, the, of these darker things that are in the unconscious, right? And perhaps now we could talk about a bit about a question I wanted to ask you is that we've lost kind of connection with how the particular runs up to the church. Because the church, of course, is universal in what it proclaims, universal values and all that. But what we need desperately now is we're a people, we're an English people, the particular. And this, but this has always existed in Christianity, right? Is it the particular? Because I see people, some of the distant right, saying, oh, Christianity is responsible for... Oh, this universalizing of values, bro, that's in metaphysics itself. 
European man has always done that. That's what Plato's saying. Physis, he's talking about everything. So no, it's not Christianity's fault that it's in us to, as Faustian, to say, ah, oh, we've just, even Heidegger did it too, saying, ah, oh, I've discovered Dasein. It's everyone's Dasein's the same, right? Dugan says this too. So those people online, I can't remember who it was that said it, that saying, ah, oh, making this podcast, the Christian's fault for universalizing values, bro. It's our fault. It's, it's the European mind. So it's fine. We, we, we now recognize values aren't universal. Fine. So how do we get the church to the particular? How do we get back to the particular to say, no, where this people, this place is for this people, yet we're still Christian? We need to do more of that, don't we? Bring it back. Because it used to be up to the church, didn't it? The green man was on the outside of the church in stone, bringing it in. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says that, no, the church should participate in these national traditions. It should be a big part of it. Robin Hood. We used to have Robin Hood ceremonies paid for by the church. May Day festivals all done by the church. So, yeah, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, first, that was an excellent impression of these people. I, th- I thought it was beautiful. Hey, bro, you know. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, I think you're, you're dead right. And the... There's a, there's, an in, there's a scholar called Andrew F. Walls who really founded the field of world Christianity. And I want to start there to kind of answer this question. Uh, world Christianity being the study of 20th century Christianity outside of Europe, because although it seems like Christianity is dying in Europe, in Africa, it was the 20th century. It really blew up in Africa and Latin America and Asia. It really wasn't a big religion outside of Europe before that point we have this idea oh the world's you know the past is christian and we're modernity but actually around the world it's a new thing really christianity um and and one of the things you have to wrestle with then is okay african christianity a lot of it doesn't look like european christianity so where's the commonality and where's the difference and he has this idea that in the christian concept you have two basic principles. One is, uh, you could say, translation or indigenization. Because the word of God, the son of God, becomes incarnate, becomes human. This is God translating into the human realm with a particular culture, with a particular ethnicity, particular gender, and so on. So the universe and the particular come together. And this is true of Christianity. It's not like Islam, where you have an Arabic culture, Arabic language, which has to be transported to multiple places. It, like the incarnation, adapts to its context. So it becomes indigenized. So Christianity in Africa isn't European Christianity. It's various forms of African Christianity. And that involves things like um, polygamy, actually. There's many African Christians who would see polygamy as a cultural issue, not a religious issue. And they would see the Old Testament as kind of evidence that this was okay in in the biblical world. Uh, Maybe other things like African music rather than European hymns, you know. So, but at the same time, for, um, uh, for Walls, there's also this principle of... uh, continuity across ages so you have this particularity but there's this common center on christ and that there's a belonging to the the universal or catholic church 
in time and space. So although an African Christian looks very different to an English Christian, when they meet up, they both recognize the Christian in each other. But they're both African and they're both or one's African and one's English. So then so then bringing this background to to the European or English context, I think that's a very helpful model for saying actually Christianity isn't one thing. It's not. Um, it's never been the imposition of a universal order. Rather, there's universal values or ideas which translate or enculturate into a particular tradition or culture. And so then, and, and this is the biblical view, it's not to make one culture, it's to bring all cultures together in praise of Christ and to fulfill them. So that's true of England as well. We don't want to have England turned into a monochrome uh, standard Western concept or American concept or even an African Christian concept. There's an English culture and tradition which Christianity for for Walls, I I think for Tolkien and for Lewis as well, is a fulfillment of of, of its ideals but in its own particular way. So coming then to how can we do that more today? I do think it's difficult because a lot of the Christian institutions you would look to, like the Church of England, have been very much influenced by a uh, desire to deracinate and see a kind of universal um, abstracted form of Christianity uh, free of ethnos, free of particularity in this country. But I, th- I think one of the ways to, to go about it is to engage actually with, for, for Christians to engage with the folklore tradition and with English mythology to really popularize it. And then people will say, okay, this guy's a Christian. Why is he doing that? And then you have this kind of conversation. I think I think that's a really important aspect of this, um, in, in part as well because because modernity is this kind of counter Christian approach. It's very it, people's have an internal barrier. I think today to Christianity, whereas to Robin Hood or King Arthur. There isn't that, right? Um, there's not that immediate uh, hostility or afraidness of this thing. But of course, as you know, Robin Hood and King Arthur, you cannot read these stories without the influence of Christianity in them and the values of Christianity there. Um, you know, uh, Robin Hood going to uh, give devotion to the Virgin Mary. You can't understand that without Christianity. Um, you know, King Arthur and the Holy Grail. It's 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 there in the text. And even if you go older to the Anglo-Saxon texts, there you have a fusion of the pagan mythology and the Christian, and it produces some of the most beautiful stuff. Uh, so, so I think um, I, I appreciate that's not like a strong, hard answer of oh, this is how we tackle the institution. Oh yeah, but I think kind of a solution <laughs> in one day. 
<laughs> but for you know for what we and those watching can do really getting into english folklore and mythology is a great starting point for this i've got some uh, orthodox uh, chads who are in my uh, greenwood part of the greenwood project mm. shout out to those guys um and they are some of the most uh, avid uh, Anglo, you know, pushing understanding. No, no, this is a particular thing that's us and here, right? So this idea that, yeah, there are lots of at least these modernist style Christians that push this idea of universalization, um, but it's not this particularism. Is like you say, it's like just because you're Christian doesn't mean you belong in England. I spoke to Jonathan Pajot and he. I talked about this particularity and how needed it is now, how it goes up to the church. And he said, and I was saying that, well, it's its spirit. Robin Hood's a real daemon. He's a real angel, if you want to use another word for it. These things exist and they need to be understood or else they remain implicit. The king spirit, the overking that I, I call it, that's a real authentic being underneath that's been waiting for us to bring it back under Christ though. Right. Well, that's what I would say. It, he and he said that it, in the ark story, in the there's room in the ark for other species other than just lions, right? Which are these things that. So when you think about it, that Englishness as a overarching spirit, as a real being, plugs in. So that's the idea: is it plugs into that, but it's its own thing. It's its own hierarchy. It has a different arrangement than the African hierarchy. It might it'll have the things it shares with the Christians. That's fine, but it, this arrangement's unique to the Englishman. That doesn't change. And that's its own spirit. And it goes in. Like we talked about in our messages and our exchanges between uh, about bleak heroic necessity. They don't have bleak heroic necessity. That's our value. And it's very near the top. I, I think um, I would root this in a doctrine of creation, actually. In the idea that in Christianity, God created all things initially as good from nothing. So there's no matter which has been used. God creates them. They all proceed from his will and his mind and in that regard then all cultures now we've been talking about the fallenness of various things and various cultures there's certain ideas which are a degeneration from what they ought to be but actually then that would imply this idea that redemption is the grace uplifting refining purifying and fulfilling all of these cultures, not obliterating them into one culture, but actually seeing, and this, maybe we need to reclaim this word, actual diversity mm. in the world. <laughs> and C.S. Lewis talks about this in That Hideous Strength towards the end, about, he, he talks about how for England, Avalon is the true spirit of England, and that this you know, the return of Arthur will see the fulfillment or defense of England when it's most needed. And it's constantly wrestling with, and, and it's very interesting, he contrasts this with Britain, which is industrialist, which is uh, rationalist and materialistic, and would do away with the, the, the Greenwood, would do away with um, community, would reduce all to the pursuit of everlasting life in this world but but a character jumps in and says well 
you're getting carried away here because you're trying to make out that Avalon's for every culture, but actually it's just for England. Yes. China, it's the Tao. Yeah. You know, every culture has its fulfillment. And in Lewis's view, this comes, this comes under Christ or Christ offers this Christianity offers this potential to be fulfilled. So you then have a kaleidoscope of cultures fully at their best. And in so doing, honouring God in the glory of creation. Whereas I see the modern approach, which tries to remove the distinctiveness of particular people groups and essentially put them into an abstract system where everybody's understood in economic terms. How much can they produce? How much can they consume? How much do they cost? Uh, And then, but then also the great melting pot idea so there's you know we're all just one human race and as long as we're you know fulfilling our sexual lives then that's you know that's all that matters really it's very freudian um it's it's the total opposite of that so so i i think that understanding of the world as that cultures are created to be fulfilled and beautiful in their own ways, just as the environment is or people are, that that supports this idea of particularity, which is upheld with universality. And they, they have their own virtues too. They have their own mm-hmm. destinies, the destiny that's in their being, that's embedded in the language itself. They're their own being bubbles. You can connect them up with the universal but there are their own being bubbles. And underneath that being, the inauthentic being, which is covered with the, like we've talked about earlier in the conversation with this propositional demon, we call it, propositional demon that is the WEF, all of this, that overking's there, growing more and more angry. <laughs> He's growing more, more angry. He's calling to his sons, this Avalon, this Arthur. That's in you right now. This value hierarchy's there, it's authentic care. It's, it's as Heidegger would call it. It's authentic value hierarchy. It's in you. Most of the time, it's covered over with propositions that confuse it. For instance, here's an example: an Englishman must always overcome tyranny. Let's see. That's that's a, that's a immoral impulsion we have when something that is not the benevolent of the benevolent king over king spirit. It's tyrannizing us. WEF, for example. We have an impulsion to say, that's what we're doing right now. That's what you are, the distant right. That's a very English response. That is gamed by the propositional demon into creating false dragons to slay, mm. right? So the impulsion might be correct authentically, but it's gamed by the inauthentic. So when people say, oh, we've lost who we are, oh, it's just really deeply buried in the unconscious. For now, you can probably change a people eventually, but there's still time. It's just very deeply, it's buried underneath for all these people and they can't help themselves. When you have a movie or something that shows these values, they can't help themselves. They go, like, ah, yeah. oh, it's Nigel Farage. There's a reason why, until they change the population, which they're working on right now, changing the population of England, Nigel Farage, Tommy Robinson, they're displaying the patterns of action of, the, of, of Robin Hood. It's in you. Robin Hood's in you right now. The literature's not just on the page. And this leads me to and we'll, we'll, we'll go for a sort of 10 more minutes now, and, but uh, we'll bring it to a close in an hour and a half. But um, well, how do you feel about that in terms of literature? Do you agree 
because this is a big part of your study and your your uh, expertise. It's not just on the page, is it? It's in us as well, especially this stuff. Because a lot of people go into literature, go into studying these things, these, and a lot of them end up sort of Marxists, trying to pushing their bullshit theories and stuff, and they see it as something just on the page. What I would say is, like the Bible, it's Jesus is behind the Gospels, right? It's the Gospel is the demigod. It's the psychotechnology that gets you to the real spirit that's there. And that's kind of the, that's the same with Robin Hood. He's in you. It's in being. But I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you, how do you feel about it? Because you've learned the methods of liter- literary formal analysis and all that. Do you think it's just on the page or do you feel it's in us? So, so I, I, th- I think one way to, to begin with this is just that if you read Tolkien and what he, he does is he doesn't just tell you a story or a list of events. He'll give you character reactions and feelings about events. So there's a moment where Aragorn, for the first time, truly embraces himself as the heir to the, to the throne of Gondor. Eomer is challenging him, saying, you need to come with me to the king because this is the law of the land. And Aragorn essentially whips out his sword and says, I am the Aragorn heir to Isildur. Uh, and, you know, I will pursue these Urukai across the plains. I, and you will either be in my way or join me. And Legolas and Gimli are astounded. They're just awestruck and filled with admiration because for the first time they see this truly great man in front of them, this, this king figure who, you know, the, it almost appears to Legolas like there's white fire across his brow like a crown. Tolkien's allowing the reader to actually experience what it's like to engage in what Carlyle would call hero worship, to admire, to love, to be loyal and obey somebody who's greater than you in a world that we don't often have that. And so he does this throughout with, you know, the, also the, the experience of utter despair at the prospect of final defeat being overturned by a great reversal, rescue at the last moment, and the feeling of utter joy that you might feel at that you know, that experience. Characters feel that too. So we get to identify with these characters and feel what they're feeling. And so in time, we can become people who feel these things in the real world, and we can embody them in the real world too. And I I totally, I totally agree with what you're saying, that when, when you've engaged with the mythology, when you've engaged with something like Lord of the Rings, and you've started to learn these emotions or responses to things, you can start to recognize them within the world itself. You start to be able to identify, oh, he's got an Aragorn-like figure. He's got that heroic quality that I didn't see before. I maybe enjoyed it watching Marvel movies, but I didn't really put the two together. Now I can feel it and now I can follow. Or maybe you yourself become that sort of figure that others others flock to so so i i think it it can have a transformative effect in two ways it helps us to it transforms our sight as it were and by that i don't just mean our senses i mean our perception of reality but in turn it transforms us morally to become those archetypes at the same time or maybe Maybe if we wanted to, to, to use a kind of platonic understanding of recollection, 
it draws out those archetypes that yes this is what i was going to say because i would go further mm-hmm. i'd go further in terms of like we talked about with theoden's charge mm. they're entering a pattern of action that is already as you say drawn out of you that pattern of actions in you especially like we talked about with the value hierarchy we already have it in all underneath authentically mm. so theoden's pattern of action works particularly for the englishman watching it same with frodo not just because of a cultural programming but because it's sort of an it's inherited it's this patterns of actions are, uh or at least in the developmental psychological stage where you basically absorb your father like you've got this value in its loose set already in you so it's not even just mm-hmm. a thing that you learn it's a more you're becoming more sensitive to something that's already there but what tolkien's genius is is that he's got the geist of the people, the being of the people that's there. So it's in you, underneath. Or else, why would you admire someone? Why would you admire someone? It has to be something in you that it's aligning with, the value hierarchy that's in you, isn't it? Because they display the patterns of behavior. And what's triggering it? Because something's got to trigger it, right? Because there's admirable behavior and there's non-admirable behavior. There has to, where's the chicken or the egg? Which is first, right? And we know that that's first. It's in you first. And then he's seen it. Because that's what makes us who we are. Because without that, yeah. we're nothing but just a cultural program thing. This is what the that's what the leftists believe. They believe that that we don't have these things that are in us, these patterns. So, but you're already going there with Plato, basically, <laughs> and you're helping it for people that don't get it. Um, but yeah, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Go on. The, oh, yes, no, no. Plato unfolds yeah, what's there, the patterns. That, so go on. Sorry. Well, well, I was I was going to say as well that actually, on a pure kind of um inheritance level the very events which allowed for us to exist depend upon actions such as northern courage such as unyielding standing defiance in the face of face of death because the actions of our forefathers inevitably are bound up with the events which led to our you know to to us so it's within our history as well our our history not just in an abstract sense of maybe even just our people but like each individual englishman you could look at the the history of their family and see these events so it, that gets carried through too and so when you have something like um the the funeral of queen elizabeth i f- i found that was a moment where this broke forth in a lot of people because Many people had very intense reactions and emotions that they had never experienced before and were suddenly loyal to King Charles in a way they had never felt before. And I, I wonder if, if that sort of thing really points to that, because it's, it's, it's not just an admiration of a, a great hero. You've got, you've got the, at the same time, rituals which belong to that history with these values and events which is being brought into the present too so the you've got the individuals you've got the persons you've got the rituals and they're all bound up together in our yes. history and it breaks forth in that moment yes you're 100 percent. we'll keep going on this because it's this a very interesting point is that you are 100 because the being is so complicated even just to break it down into heroes and the behaviors but no it's a whole organism and as you say, the history, it's actually a part of your, op- your open, openness being right now is that you think, oh, it's just the history story. No, 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 because you're not just the all- you're not just a biological being. You're also 
everything that you know is kind of this openness existential bubble that is being itself and that expands and so you began and you're grow and then you're into the wider open being so what that means is is that underneath it what's pushing you from underneath is the whole history of your people unconsciously or whatever you're unaware of it that continues on so it's not just his history isn't just the timeline of when you look at a cause right you go oh Churchill did this in the war. Therefore, that's the reason why that happened. It's like the list of the events. No, no. What about the being that pushed everything of all the events together? Because the, the world isn't just the uh, causal cause and effect of all the happening of all particles. It's all the being of all the beings together constantly. You know what I mean? Do you understand what I mean? It's going and underneath and pushing to inform events. That's what's causing it, not the two seconds ago that the causal events happened. Because because we have the future. We are ecstasis. We're out of body in both present and past. So that's informing you mm. all the time. So you carry around England itself in your being, unrecognized. And these rituals, obviously, like you said... And that's what was so great that this has happened now. We needed this to call people back to their mm. authentic English being. And that was the, the true nature, the true, the true function of the ceremony was to do this. To sort, so people started to see authentically who they are. That's what a funeral does. When you lose a relative, you feel something's missing and you're called to your own mm. being, aren't you? And so these rituals, without people even realizing it, are showing the English who they are. That's helping to call them to it. It's not rendered in a proposition, though, is it? It's in its context. It, mm-hmm. People sort of have a feeling for it. Ah, oh, the king. And they've drawn and they're impelled towards it, right? Where does that come from? It comes from within. So you've really touched on something so important there. Yeah. I, I, I wanted to also just maybe frame it in, an, in another way that might help some people to Yeah, please. To sorry. I, I, I go too abstract. I definitely do that. Oh, don't worry about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't worry about that. Yeah. Um, so th- there's this idea... I think Augustine mentions it, but, you know, church fathers, when they talk about the fall and the original sin, there's this idea that when Adam uh, and Eve ate the fruit from the, the tree that they shouldn't have, all humanity was bound within that because, in a sense, Adam's seed was all within him, right? So, uh, in a sense, you were there, <laughs> you know, as a, as a as sperm, let's say mm. to, to put maybe too crudely but you were there <laughs> and you were complicit and that affected yeah. you because he his action affected you know his seed so could you not then maybe extend this idea so when Birthnoth stands at the battle of Malden and his he foolishly allows the the vikings to cross the river there's something of that Faustian spirit there Mm. that's affected us but then also those others who who stand and fight for their lord to the bitter end Mm. that's also part of us and we could Mm. see the same in other events which our forefathers actually were in Mm. as having that effect upon us and Mm. and when you look at uh you know in in the bible there's this also this this idea of you know the sins of the father carry on for for multiple generations but the good of a father goes even further. It's like thousands of generations. And there is a sense in which what we do, just as what our ancestors did, has this effect too on mm. our descendants. Mm. 
Mm. And whether they be our biological ones or our ethnic or cultural ones, mm. Mm. there's a sense of which they are carried with us mm. as we were carried before. Mm. And that puts a great, great deal more responsibility on our yes. choices and decisions of what we choose to do with our time. Mm. Uh, than an individualist sense of I am just a product of somebody yeah. else. I'm a biological being. Mm. I'm an atom, which I can define my life. It has no, as long as it doesn't harm anybody else. Mm. Well, it does help or harm your descendants. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. So I wonder if this idea of being actually uh, within our, in our ancestors yes. is a good way of thinking about this. Well, 100% because... I think, again, it's like we were talking earlier in the conversation. You would see this if you were in the correct ontology. It's hard to... You, you, over, and that's what Jonathan Pajot's work is very useful in what he's doing, waking people up to the symbolic way of thinking, is that these things, the propositional left-brain way of thinking is not suited to highly complex, overarching organisms, overarching, uh, complex, dynamic systems because it's it's the thing that breaks down and we're in the left brain mode right that chops things up and takes them out of their context context is right brain again i'm just gonna try try to be more as you have done a great example to get people into understanding what i'm saying rather than heideggerian terminology but yeah right brain your right brain is the thing that gets the context and we've stepped away from that right brain is the thing that understands god right thing right brain you know is the thing that's getting annoyed uh, that that we're, we're stepping away from our true our true uh, being. So you'd recognize these things if you, as and as you get into this way of life again, as we talked about earlier with your uh, example of Lord of the Rings, living the way of life, you see it more. You see as you go into the thing, you inhabit the procedures, you start to see it. Um, and I think that way of thinking will turn out to be also predictive. So it'll. For those utility brains that are so obsessed with utility, <coughs> it's not just a spiritual benefit. It it has that that uh, that area. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that I put it better myself. <laughs> I guess that's probably a good good place to bring it to a close. We'll definitely talk mm. again, though, man. There's so much more to talk about with Maldom. Yes. We didn't get time to go into it, but we'll, well, that'll be episode <laughs> two. We'll go more into English values and go into it. But that was, dude, was such a great conversation. Uh, great to have you on. It's been a it's been a pleasure, and you've you've uh, you've awoken a flame in my heart. And I, <laughs> I thank you enough for that. Yeah, check out Nathan's uh, channel. It's in the description on the comments. Excellent, uh, excellent storytelling. Excellent breaking down these narratives of their essence. 